Hey, everyone. Just want to let you know that if you like Danger Close, be sure to follow at This Is Ironclad on Instagram, YouTube, and all major platforms. They're the team that produces Danger Close and all of the trailers for the Terminal List novels. They also produce and distribute more great content like Change Agents with Andy Stump, which I executive produce, Oil & Whiskey with Roadster Shop, which features guests including Joe Rogan, Jesse James, and others, and the behind-the-scene filmmaking series Into the Fray, and a bunch more. Into the Fray recently broke down the making of the trailer for my latest novel, Only the Dead, starring my friend and teammate Dom Rasso as James Reese. Remember, that's at This Is Ironclad on YouTube and Instagram. This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. First off, I wanted to thank everyone who made my latest novel, Only the Dead, number one on the New York Times bestsellers list in hardcover, ebook combined, and audio. It is sincerely appreciated more than I can possibly express. My guest today, Steve Vernella. You know him from the Meat Eater TV show, the Meat Eater podcast, from his dozens of articles and books. He has a new one out right here. Catch a crayfish, count the stars, focused on kids. And now, without further ado, here's Steve Vernella. You got to just embrace the interruptions at home because i know mm-hmm. like those kids well, right there i was at my office all day and i want to back over to this neck of the woods uh, i need to be here but here i am yelling at people to shut up and no it's out. perfect it's perfect but uh yeah i mean our little guy we just dropped him at camp in wyoming yesterday he's gone for a month and uh, it's horse packing backpacking fly fishing learn how to tie flies uh archery oh. riflery so i think that's those are the main core things that they do there uh but when he comes back, it'll be, you know, it's, it's interruptions all the time, but I've decided just to embrace those because he's growing up so fast. And I know that uh-huh. when he's gone, I'm going to miss those interruptions. So I'm just embracing all the interruptions when it comes to, to writing, you know, but, uh, you've had to write, look at these books for anybody watching, for people who are listening, there's a stack of Steve's books here and man, these are awesome. And this took a long time to do mm-hmm. and part of these were with kids how many of these did you write when you had kids uh i'm trying to look at your pile there i think it's all of them it should no, be no, a- no 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 i did i did multiple books before i had kids yeah um yeah I did, I did three i think before i had kids and back then i would be that was the main thing i did you know and uh yeah. uh yeah just singularly focused on them and they were i feel like i was so much less efficient maybe mm. Because, you know, I would just take my time and, you know, research for a long time. And I used to think, like, if I was looking at a thing I had to write, I used to think, like, man, if I wrote a page a day, yeah, you know, I'd be done in a year. And then yeah. six months would go by and I hadn't done anything. <laughs> <laughs> I like, think that's most right. I'd be like, if I wrote two pages a day. There I'd you go. Exactly. Then you get six months and you're like, well, <laughs> I haven't started yet. Now it's two pages a day and you're still on track. Uh, right. That's just how and that eventually, how like, goes. If I wrote four pages a day i'll be done (laughs) Uh uh-huh and this one i mean this is this is a book for kids right here Mm -hmm. but it still doesn't mean it took any less time than any others how long did it take you to write this well not as long you know you'll you'll see on there i have a good buddy that i that i that i work with and and he was a 
we're in a very remarkable Brody Henderson. We're we're in a remarkably similar situation where he um he didn't come from the writing background. He was a fishing guide, but he, he's always written as well. Yeah. And we work together on it. We both got kids that are roughly the same age and we're both lifelong hunters and anglers, you know. And um and we worked on it really closely together. And we started thinking about it because I I did a my, my previous book. Um my previous book was called uh outdoor kids in an inside world yep, right? right here and it was more it was like fo- it, it was focused towards parents in a similar situation to me which is um which is like uh i grew up very with incredible access to to the outdoors i, I grew up on a lake um we grew up in a very rural area you know we were as young kids we could just ride around on our bikes with 22s you know and just do whatever we wanted and circumstances work circumstances and, and such had it that when i started having kids we were living in we, we were living in cities for a number of years just because of the nature of the work i was involved in and i had this terrible feeling of guilt that i wasn't going to give them what i had and you know i, I it's probably global but i think of it as this very american perspective that you know, you, you measured in a family, you kind of measure generational success where it's like each generation aspires to give more to your kids yeah. than, than you got. And that had been going along in my family for a long time. You know, my dad never, my, my dad didn't finish high school, right? He, he enlisted, you know, during the war, he enlisted when he was somehow he got in when he was 17, never finished high school. You know, then his kids went on to do college and advanced degrees. And so, you know, you feel like you're progressing in this American dream situation. Yeah. And then I and then I had this thing where, wow, my kids are not, you know, I'm able to I, they're, they're going to have better access to education. They're going to have better access to professional networks. But the nature thing mm-hmm. um, and I want to be in it was really unwarranted because as nervous as I was about being able to provide them with the kind of experiences and adventures I had outdoors, like. I wanted being quite successful at it and did, and, and it went better than I thought. Yeah. I would never hold myself up as a parenting expert, but um, I'm an expert at getting kids outside. So anyways, I, I did that book and and geared toward parents or geared toward caregivers or anyone who has that feeling of that, that I don't even call it, a, I shouldn't call it a feeling who holds the knowledge that their lives, the kids in their lives, their lives are going to be better if they have a close connection to the natural world. Yeah. While doing that book, I kept thinking, man, I'd like to follow this up with something for kids, which before I had kids, I would have had never imagined as something I would ever get involved in, but I really wanted to do it. I was like, when I finish this, I'm going to do a thing that's geared toward kids and, and, uh, and kind of take a lot of the activities and then lessons and adventures that I have with my kids or that, that my dad had with me and put them down in a digestible format where someone can look and sort of shop through a book and find all these cool experiences um, in a step-by-step fashion, even though that might not be how you do it with your own kids, right? Like you might just bake it into life, but if you don't, it's just a really easy way to do it. 
Yeah, man, I love this thing. I remember growing up, I had a few books that were geared uh, towards kids. They're uh, out of print now. One was called, there was a Hardy Boys book, and it was called The Hardy Boys, Seven Stories of Survival. And uh, oh. I still, to this day, I still have it. And oh. uh, and I still have the bindings all coming apart, but I have it like in a special spot. But uh, man, I learned some good things out of that book and uh, that, I, that stick with me today. Um, yeah, there were a few other when ones. I was a kid, that's all I read. This is pre-YouTube, you know, <laughs> way pre-YouTube. So <laughs> I read, like, I, I would go to the library and check out this book called Trap Lines North. And, uh, and if you look, you know, they used to punch the back. Yep. You know, it was all just me, man. That's awesome. I, just, I was know, thinking about that out, the other day. Back, check it out. Yeah. You could find and, out like who checked it out before turn. you. You could be like, who was this person? You know, and if, <laughs> imagine that today. They never do that today. But uh, you could see like who checked it out. And then uh, and if it got too long, they had to replace that card. And then you'd start it kind of start anew. But man, that that was kind of cool back in the day to see who checked it out. It'd be so awesome today if they still had all those cards and some kid oh. goes in there and gets that same book and sees your name in there from like, you know, 1989 or something like that. That'd be cool. That'd be really cool. There's this book. There's there's a book I talk about in my book, Outdoor Kids in an Inside World, and and I, and and in the end, I I get into this idea of bringing the outdoors indoors. Meaning, no matter how successful you are in getting your family engaged with nature, like you live in, we, we sleep inside, we spend a bunch of time inside. I mean, let's be frank. So I talk about ways to introduce the outdoors into your home, basically, mm-hmm. you know, the, the things we keep in our home and all these ideas. And then I get into book selection. And the thing that's always bothered me um, is the way so many kids books really push a, push a sort of anti-human mm. perspective. Meaning, you know, when you watch, when you read kids books now or watch animated things designed for kids, it's quite often that the, 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 the enemy is a person that, um, utilizes natural resources in, mm-hmm. in, in some way. And I, and I grow tired of that. I grow tired of the anthropomorphism of, of wildlife. I go tired of the, the perspective pushed in books to kids that if they have a hands-on relationship to nature and they hunt and fish, they're doing something wrong. You know, if you cut firewood, you know, that you're doing something wrong. And so I've looked for books that, that I think balance that perspective. And one of the books I recommend and I talk about in there is this very obscure title, Possum. And um, it's just it's it's this it's this story where there's this little baby possum and it has nine siblings and and um gets into the possum diet, you know, and they're always eating these disturbing things, and slowly the siblings all just get eaten off by snapping turtles, hawks, like all this horrible stuff happens. So there's one little possum left. <laughs> what is what is it? What age group is this geared towards? Oh, my kids all the time. But their favorite thing about the book, though, to bring this full circle, their, their favorite thing about the book is the punch out card because it was a library reject. OK, there's this punch out card and the and this book was published in the 50s and, and the spans of years that would go by between getting checked out. Oh, yeah. Close their mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it was it wasn't uh every two weeks yeah no, it's like someone got it in 1969 <laughs> someone got it in 1980 yeah i can see that, that not being unique to that particular library as well oh, so man. funny man i'm gonna have to read it now i've not read that one but i have read this one and i want to read something to everybody else here to, uh this from the from the beginning because it's good for kids and adults and uh you right here you say i got my start having these adventures when i was a kid like you 
The thing I loved more than anything else was being outside, doing stuff like hunting, fishing, canoeing, exploring, making forts, and sneaking up on birds and animals. Back then, my dad gave me an important piece of advice. And this is what he says. You're going to spend a third of your life working, he told me. So you better find a job that you love. It was the best piece of advice I ever got. And he repeated it about a hundred times. That's how I eventually got to one of the coolest jobs in the world, which is being a writer. My job is to have great outdoor adventures and then share my stories with other people. If I hadn't learned how to do the kinds of things that you're going to learn in this book, I wouldn't be doing the awesome things that I get to do now. That is pretty cool. And uh, for your dad to say that, he knew that he had to repeat that at least a hundred times. Uh, <laughs> for any parents listening, you know, and any, any, anybody in general, it's, it's, uh, it's certainly more than three times you have to repeat things for kids. But that's cool that he kept telling you that and didn't just kind of check that box and say it once and then, you know, move on back to whatever whatever he was doing. Uh, when did he first tell you that? When did it first click for you? It was, it was always, and I didn't come to appreciate it until much later when I got into, uh, I, I had a very, you know, I was just very, I, I had a, a very blue collar existence up to a point when I went to graduate school and I went to a, a, a good writing program and met people from other sort of, I don't want to make a hierarchical sounding, but sort of like the higher echelons of society. Right. And, um, and, and families that had a, 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 a legacy of wealth or a legacy of, of educational achievement. And I became aware of, of these people that had, that, that carried around, um, really heavy expectations like 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 heavy expectations from their family mm -hmm. about what they would do how they would live their lives that weren't it wasn't a moral code um but it was a it was a expectation about maintaining affluence or an mm -hmm. expectation about um keeping up appearances mm. you know in a way that struck me as really false and how this pertains to, to writing the particular advice is a lot of these people I met were really talented writers, but they didn't have their people, their families hadn't given them the runway to just fail for a long time. Yeah. You know, or not even to fail for a long time, but to give you a long time to achieve it. But with, with how the advice I got from my dad about, man, pick a thing you want to do and make sure you love it and just do that. So I never had to entertain a plan B. And so I, I wound up um, being able to live like very, living very, very close to the bone. I always point out, I don't believe you can be in poverty if you don't have kids because it, it, it's just different. It's just, you're just broke. You know, if you have kids, it's like, there's a, I think there is such a thing as poverty when you're single, you're just broke. Right. Mm. I lived a long time broke. I lived in, I had two brothers. I lived in each of their basements alternately. Um, but no, uh, no feeling of, of like letting someone down or being a loser. Like I had a goal, I was pursuing it. I achieved it. And then later I was like, wow, that really paired with what I had been hearing from my dad about find a thing you like and stick with it. And so I never got tempted by a plan B or a thing that I didn't want to do that just felt easier. And not that you need to succumb to family pressure, but I didn't have family pressure. And what was super funny about my dad as well is 
I mean, right when I started to publish, I was just publishing in magazines, like small little things in magazines. But I'd go into a tackle shop with my dad, and he'd want to go up to the counter and be like, do you have any idea who this is? Nice. <laughs> to which they would invariably say, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, now they do. Now they have all, Now they have your books in there, probably. And I've heard the podcast. I've watched the show. Uh, and, man, for your kids, do, you have, do they have uh, that interest in history as far as uh, Mountain Men and uh, Daniel Boone and Jedediah Smith and all those, uh, all those guys that were influential to you growing up? And how did you first well, get interested in those they, guys? They don't have the um, – I can't figure it out. They're very engaged with the present day. <laughs> and even though I've tried to make it stick, they don't have that nostalgia. Yeah. Um, I had always been told, another thing I was told by my dad all the time is he's like, you were born 200 years too late. You know, you missed the boat, right? Right. On the, the way you want to live, like, you, you can't do that. You know, the, like, you're not going to be a fur trapper. You got to figure something else out because, you know, you've been fur trapped for 10 years and, you know, you, you can't make any money at that. You were born too late. And it, was, it was half joking when he would say it, but he would just point out that, you know, you missed it. Like you, uh, you, you wish you, you, you kind of wish you were like 1770, you know, but it's right. not, you were born in 1974. Yeah. Um, but I always had that nostalgia for the bygone times. They don't have it. They don't like, they don't read about that stuff. They, they, they're very engaged with what they can do now. And they're excited about their life now, but that, I used to think it was baked into every outdoorsman was this feeling that you should have been alive in 1800 or whatever, right. 1700, 1800. Like I thought everybody felt that way. Um, I've tried to turn them on to those titles, you know, it just, they're just fine being alive now. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I had some pictures. It's I ran good. A... It's yeah, no, good, good for them. Good. Yeah. Good for them. But it's also good to, I think, to have that foundation of history so you can make uh wiser decisions in the present. Um, and for those guys, I have, I found some old pictures over, over Thanksgiving that had, uh, me in a coonskin cap with my brother and sister. And, uh, uh this with, with a, a felt with, uh, like felt costumes that my grandmother made us like sewed up oh, for us like with fringe. Yeah, exactly. With the fringe yeah. down there and had this old, you know, fake musket, uh, musket there. And, and, uh, yes, there was that, there is that, that call to the past, I think, or there was for, for our generation. I wonder if it's just those things that you'd see on TV on that one channel that was always playing like at one outlier channel in the eighties, you know, there's ABC, CBS, NBC, and then one outlier. And there was always playing yeah. like a war movie or maybe like the Alamo or something. You're like, wait, who is that guy? You know? And like Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone or whatever, or, or even Disney back then showing some of those, not the, uh, not the animated stuff, but uh, showing Daniel Boone and, and, uh, and Davy Crockett with some of their, their books that they used to have back then, those little kind of picture books that would go along oh, yeah. with like a the TV show that they were doing or something like that um, where they weren't so, uh, <laughs> maybe anti-hunting, uh, you know, they'd show the guy, they wouldn't nope. show the hunting, but they'd show these guys, you know, marching through the woods with a rifle and a knife, um, which they probably wouldn't do today. But, uh, but yeah, where did that come from for you? Where did you first, uh, start learning about those guys? And then when did you go, did you go to the library and start researching the the histories? And Oh yeah. That? For me, it was all, uh, I have an older, I have a much older half brother and he, uh, To, to get, I mean, much older. So, so I'm 49 years old. I have a brother. This kind of blows people's minds. I have my dad. When my dad left for World War II, his his girlfriend, wife to be, uh, was pregnant with my brother. Right. So I have a brother that's 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 uh, you know, 80 now. Wow. Um, wow. 
he, but he, he had this, he lived a super cool life. So, you know, my dad raised every, all, all of his kids in the outdoors. You talk and, about him in the beginning of Meat Eater, right? Yep. He, yeah. So, right here. So he um, was in Colorado. He was an elk guide, mountain lion guide, river guide. Um, and one day, we, one time when I was 10, we went out to stay with him for summer and just ride horses and do various stuff with his business and things. And when I and when we were coming home, he gave us a bunch of muskrat traps. He gave us a bunch of number one Victor single long springs. Um, at that time, that was 84. And there was a huge fur boom, um, fur price boom that ran through the late 80s, or sorry, late 70s and early 80s. This fur boom peaked from 78 to 82. Uh a, a friend of mine pointed out every generation has its fur boom. That was that was that fur boom mm. um and so i got traps in 84 muskrats were still pretty good money uh you would mow a lawn right you'd mow a lawn for seven eight ten bucks but you could get five six seven dollars for a muskrat mm-hmm. so i got real fired up about trapping muskrats and my old man made a little ledger and we borrowed some more money and bought up some 110 conibears some northwoods 110 conibears and started just going after muskrats hard and then mink raccoon everything from there and that and i just fell like wholly in love with fur trapping so when i went down when i started down the path for his history for me was these key times and key figures in the in the fur harvester mm-hmm. end of things so i read a lot about the the you know, people use mountain men for a variety of different terms. When I say mountain men, I'm talking about Rocky Mountain beaver trappers from, you know, roughly whatever, very early 1800s, post Lewis and Clark up until 1834 or whatever, when the beaver market collapsed. And I'm talking about a specific window. I studied that window hard. Um, then I got into the fur trappers, the Canadian fur trappers in the 1920s and the Alaska fur trappers in the 20s and all these other peak fur harvesting periods. So that was how I dipped into start being a student of history. Um, and I shouldn't put it quite that, make it sound that grandiose, because I was reading all secondary sources, you know, re- reading books by people. But I got into journals, and that was my entry point into history, which which means a lot to me now. And and I've since traveled on, and I spent a lot of time on Ice Age. I, I love to read about Ice Age hunters and and. and other eras but for me it was really there was a there's a discipline that i wanted to pursue and i read about people who pursued that discipline um even when i turned i set my last i sold my last piece of fur when i was 22 um and and quit trapping for money but still to this day read about trappers yeah. And other people involved in the fur trade, the hide trade, you know, Dana Boone basically was a deer hide hunter. Um, Crockett was a bear meat and bear grease hunter. Uh, and so these market hunters, I, I, as much as they commit, committed a, some horrendous sins against American wildlife, they are these archetypal wilderness characters that I love to study and write about. Yeah. And you talk, you talk a little bit about them in here. I forget which, there's so many books. I forget which ones you talk about these guys in, but uh, John Coulter was one of these guys. And uh, sure. how did he meet his end? Uh, 
Well, Coulter. Did he escape? So, I forget if he escaped or not. That's what I was going to ask Coulter you. Coulter died. Yeah, Coulter. Uh, the, the those trappers, those mountain men that lived, tend to a lot of them tended to die somewhat peaceful lives back on farms. But he had a horrendous situation in his life where he and another trapper by the name of Potts were caught by the Blackfeet. Um, just just west of where I'm sitting right now, what was called the Three Forks, meaning where the Gallatin, Jefferson, and Madison Rivers converged to make the Missouri. Um, they got caught trapping there. And Potts was all chopped up. And, you know, you hear different versions, but they had, uh, you know, gutted him out, cut his testicles off, and smeared blood all up and down Coulter and... and made a horrific mess out of the guy and then made Coulter run for his life naked. And that's come to be known as Coulter's run. Um, at a while you had Coulter's run and then Yellowstone was known as Coulter's hell. So he had these great, <laughs> he had these Man. great names, you know, but uh, Coulter survived that. And that's been aspects of that have been lifted up and put into various movies. So yeah, the naked prey was um, one, I think. Who the hell's the more? No, who's the guy that played like Ben Hur? His name's escaping me right now. Charlton Heston. Heston. Yeah. Charlton Heston. In Charlton Heston's The Mountain Men, there's a little John Coulter reenactment, and there's aspects from Coulter's life that have been woven into various things. But Coulter himself, um, you know, lived to tell the tale, and a lot of those guys that were involved in that industry uh, did not. It was a very high there, – there was high attrition um, <laughs> among that uh, – yeah. uh, among those folks, which makes you, as much as they're – painted in history as these money hungry um the, these money hungry savages there's some part of it that they were drawn by adventure and curiosity because mm-hmm. i don't care how money hungry you are like the 25 30 40 percent chance you're going to die a violent death mm-hmm they didn't like the money that much. Yeah. yeah there were other, there were other options, but maybe it's that calling. Maybe it's that calling. You know, they, they heard that call and they listened and, and you had that call and, and you listened. Um, yeah. and, and, and your dad with his advice, you know, kind of helped make that, uh, okay to listen to that calling, uh, which is what I think was really cool about your dad's advice. Um, because same thing for me, I felt that calling serve specifically as a seal. And then to write, I listened to that calling. I didn't let people, and in the next paragraph in this book, you talk about, uh, people that'll tell you that, uh, you should have a backup plan, uh, or that's, you know, that's not a real, that's not a real job, uh, type of a thing. And I noticed that people do it just with a look. They don't even have to say that they can just tell you with a look. Like if you tell me you want to be an outdoor writer, they just look at you like, Oh, that's even if they say, Oh, that's nice. You know, good luck. But you can just kind of tell there's a little tone in the voice that's like they don't believe it. They're gonna, you know, you know and it's it's. Uh, well, but listening I'll, to that calling is so important. I'll sometimes hear it from others, and I don't mean it. I don't mean it the wrong way. But if if I give that look you're talking about accidentally, subconsciously, if I give that look, I might be giving that look because I'm thinking to myself, I don't know if you quite understand what you're saying mm-hmm. but sometimes i'll get from people where I'll, I'll i'll think to myself he believes this is true he or she knows what that means and i think that they'll do it yeah right if they if they know exactly what they're saying then i'll point out that when i started saying that i didn't know i had never met a writer i had never met a writer 
Yeah, well, you don't need to. I think it's that it's that calling. I mean, you knew there was a library, you knew there were books, you knew somebody wrote them. Um, and I think it's so important for kids to anybody really to listen to that calling. Otherwise, you get to be 40, 50, 60, 70 years old and look back and think, oh man, I should have listened to that calling when I was younger. Why did I not do that? Why did I get discouraged along the route? But uh, a lot of people get discouraged along the route. I think probably the majority of people don't mm. listen to that calling. Uh, and now, of course, with TikTok and everything else, there's so many distractions. You don't even have a time to really connect with yourself, with the outdoors, with that calling, because you're distracted every 15 seconds by something. Um, so that's tough, too. But you know, I did want to ask you about beaver tail. Um, and uh, we were talking about trappers. And I think you had a change of heart at some point about, about beaver tail. Yeah, I had read so many times that, that uh, the favorite food of the mountain men was, was beaver tail. And since then, I've found in, in other other eras, you know, other people who really relish this dish. And I always like to point out because it's again pre-internet. So, um, man, it was it was difficult. It was it was if you wanted to find something out back in those days, you had to intentionally find it out. Oh yeah, you had to go look. We had to you work. Can't remember now. You can't remember now that you could get in an argument with your buddies about <laughs> something. Well, you know, whatever, like what a, what an insect noise is off in the woods. Mm -hmm. And you might go months and not be able to resolve the argument. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it, it was, it took a lot of effort to solve problems. Um, I remember when I, the first time I found a buffalo skull eroding out of the ground, I had to go to the damn library and get a book called Skulls and Bones by Glenn Searfrost to find out what I had. I'd find out in three seconds now. Right. Anyhow, pre-internet, I, I read this about beaver tail and, couldn't find how they prepared it, what, what they exactly meant. And we trapped beavers back then to sell them. And so one day we stuck one in an oven. My, my brother Danny, I shouldn't say we, my brother Danny sticks one in an oven and just bakes it for a while. And it just comes out a total mess, you know, because it's got that black scaly tail on it. Okay. And he's like, man, that can't be what they're talking about, dude, because I just put one in the oven, man. There's no, you can't eat that thing. So then we thought it must be that when these guys say – that their favorite meal was beaver tail must be the hams, mm -hmm. the rump, mm -hmm. you know? So we started eating a lot of <laughs> just jamming beaver rumps down into crock pots. And we'd even in the morning, if we, we used to go up and trap this place called Macosta County in Michigan in December, January, trap it through the ice. And, uh, you know, we'd skin beavers at night, wake up in the morning, cram a couple beaver thighs into a crock pot with some potatoes, carrots, yeah, turn it up high run traps all day, come back at dark and eat the beaver thighs. And I was like, yeah, yeah, it was pretty good. I can see why the mountain men liked it. Eventually though, I don't know how it was. I figured out that like, no, they actually did mean, I, I remember, I, I, I knew, I, I can't remember the thing that actually kicked it off, but I wrote about it and probably mentioned it in there, but I came to the realization that they absolutely meant the tail. Yeah. And I somehow found a reference to how to prepare it. And you need to skewer that tail. Like you found a first person account. Finally, this, this changed your yeah. mind, right? You found a first person, first person account. I you think know, you skewer that tail and hang it next to a fire and let it slowly broil. That was the word they always used in the old days. They were going to broil it mm. and you let it broil. And eventually that skin starts to bubble up and pull away. And then you can scrape that scaly stuff off. It's the same stuff you ever seen, like a beaver wallet. You know that that hide, that scaly stuff scrapes off. And what's underneath there can best be described as the the when, when most people order a steak, when most people order a T bone, 
the part they leave on their plate, not the bone part, but the part they leave on their plate, the gristle. Mm -hmm. That's what's inside a beaver's tail. Okay. Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle home ownership during this high rate market. With their new no refi rate drop option, if you buy your next home now and mortgage rates drop later, you could lower your rate by paying a low fee instead of refinancing and paying thousands in closing costs. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. Also, planning any travel this summer? Navy Federal flagship credit card treats members to our highest rewards and premium benefits. Flagship makes it easy to rack up rewards with higher points on travel, including everything from tolls to terminals. Earn a bonus 40,000 points when you spend 4,000 in the first 90 days. Plus, enjoy a free year of Amazon Prime. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Learn more at NavyFederal.org. Federally insured by NCUA, membership required, equal housing lender. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval and eligibility requirements. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. As of 5-1-2023, the rates for flagship are 14.74% to 18% based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs, a $49 annual fee for Visa Signature Flagship Rewards. NavyFederal.org. But, but, but think about this for a minute. You, here you have people that are, that are, are basically... They're existing on at times a, a fat-free diet. Yeah. Meaning you're eating, let's say it's in the wintertime, and you're eating, you're eating deer, you're eating elk, whatever. You're eating beaver flesh. Um, that stuff's lean. It's like even in the best of times, it can be lean. But a lot of times those animals, there's nothing. There's no fat cap. You know, you you mm. you skin out a deer in, in the winter, um, post rut for a buck. There's no fat cap on there. It's just lean. So picture when you've been out camping for a while or whatever, how you start fixating on that you're going to go order the greasiest thing you can imagine. Yeah. You're getting fast off. So imagine here's this giant, valuable rodent swimming around that you're processing anyways. And then you learn that you can get a slab, a third a pound, a half a pound of just fat. You're going to love it, right? <laughs> and that was that was the key. And so... When I explain it to people now and, and serve it to people, I'll explain that I'm not I'm not putting this in front of you for you to judge whether you think it's good mm -hmm. you know, or not. I'm putting this in front of you as a history lesson, right? Imagine yeah. you don't have butter, you don't have oil, you've just been eating the leanest cuts of meat, and then all of a sudden here's this dripping fat, gristly thing. It's like, dude, you would it would be your favorite food too. Yeah. yeah. In that situation. Right. You know. <laughs> no, I love reading about that. And then uh in here, like I get asked for recommendations for kid books all the time. And a lot of times mm -hmm. I'm at a loss. You know, there's a few. Um, but because I haven't been reading too many kids' books lately, I don't really know uh what to recommend. Well, now I know another one to recommend right here. Uh, and I love you talk about squirrels in here and squirrel hunting in here. And uh, I think you wrote in one of your books, maybe Meat Eater, that uh, if you could eat one thing the rest of your life, it would be squirrel. Is that? Yeah, I could I could picture that. There's a huge nostalgia <laughs> for me. It's good. And here's the thing is uh, it's even more liberal now. 
on the season dates. Yeah. It's just one state's example. Um, Squirrel seasons are generally regulated in the East and oftentimes not regulated in the West. But when I was growing up, squirrel season started September 15th and ran through the year. Mm -hmm. Right. Now it runs till March 1. So it's usually squirrel season. Yeah. (laughs) It's like it's usually squirrel season. And our gun deer season was was uh, 10 days. Oh, wow. So you could have a lot of guys that would self-identify as a hunter, you know, self-identify. Like you ask them, like, what, what's your story, man? You know, what do you like to do? I like to hunt deer. And if they weren't a bow hunter, you bow hunt for quite a long time. But if you okay. were a gun deer hunter, dude, best case scenario, best case scenario, you hunted 10 days a year. Mm. Um, And that's, you know, if you hunt ducks, it's different. But if you're just like a deer hunter, right. best case is 10 days a year. But we would run, we would pursue squirrels. When I say we, I thought me and guys around the neighborhood, my brothers, you know, we could pursue squirrels half the year. And so it just kept you out all the time. You know, uh, my kid now, we don't have the kind of squirrels I grew up hunting. You know, we grew up focusing on Eastern gray squirrels and fox squirrels. Here we have a lot of pine squirrels. They're completely unregulated. There's no bag limit. Mm. There's no closed season. They're quite small. I mean, my kids sat down and ate out. Remember, we are, I think our record is, you know, 24 in one sitting or something. Oh, wow. But he can, they can be out and hunt. They can just hunt yeah. when they want. It doesn't need to be this huge production opening day and all that, right? They can, we can go out and camp. You can give them an air gun. You can give them 22, tell them where to go, where not to go. Uh, you go through the woods, that squirrel's going to get pissed and chirp. And you can get his location and they can hunt and stalk. That's cool. And and learn how to shoot. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. So I mean, if you're gonna pick one thing, I mean, plus I think that they're phenomenal. Um, I've never served anybody that didn't think they were phenomenal. There's a stigma, perhaps, to it. Um, definitely not in, in Appalachia, definitely not in the Ozarks, areas of the south, there's no stigma, but in a lot of areas there's a stigma about eating squirrel. Um but how great of a resource for kids. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And what, time in the field. Yeah, man. time in the field. In the field. Exactly. You know? Exactly. What uh, not there a grand slam of squirrel or something? I read an mm-hmm. article. Yeah. There's people are serious about it. Like they're going to get them. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So I, I guess I should be careful about um, talking up my squirrel bona fide. <laughs> I am not a squirrel grand slam. <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> There's still time. Yeah. People are going to be like, he ain't nothing. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> You'll hear about it in the comment section. Uh-huh. No doubt about it. Oh, man. And you know what I love in this book? Also, in, in Meat Eater, you have the photos in here. And it's so mm. cool that you captured your first deer uh, in a photo. And that was, that seemed like a really cool experience. Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I got to jump the gun a little bit. This is a thing. You went to, to the blade. Me. I mean, you transitioned to the blade on this thing. You weren't messing around. Oh, yeah. It's so funny that, but so at that time in Michigan, I'll touch on this too, because it's relevant to kids, an aspect of the age thing there that I was 13. At that time in Michigan, you had to be 12 to hunt small game legally. So you had to complete hunter safety and be 12 to hunt small game. You could hunt archery deer at 12. You had to hunt rifle deer at 14 which is, it, it's just too late. And they, they fixed it. It's too late. But I got a little jump on it. Um, and we never had to wait that long. Uh, 
to hunt and and i got a doe when i was 13 and we were doing a little deer drive and we knew this little bottom by a place called mosquito creek and when you spooked the deer out of this section of mosquito creek we knew what ridge they were going to use to leave the ravine and i was posted up there and all of a sudden here's this deer right in my face and it was just looking at me over the crest of the ridge i could just see the top part of it and i thought i was going to hit it in the neck and got a bad hit on it and hit it in the jaw it rolls down the hill and and uh <laughs> it just it, I, I don't know what i've read too many mountain man books i had a like a beaver skinner knife you know that i would carry around in my belt and i pulled out that beaver skinner knife and jumped on that deer <laughs> and cut its throat and then our people observed when everybody gathered around later, like, why don't you just shoot it? You know, and it just hadn't, it just hadn't occurred. <laughs> hadn't occurred to you. Exactly. That's not what they did with the well, musket. I got on it. Yeah. I got on it, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and got it. And uh, when I mentioned the age thing about that is what a lot of states are doing now, and I think it's phenomenal, is they've created these mentored hunting opportunities. So in Michigan, now they leave it. It's a family decision. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're within arm's reach of your mentor, which would ever be a legally licensed, I don't know what, 21 years, whatever it is, a licensed hunter in good standing, either your family or someone your family has signed off on. It's a family decision, right? That, that, that kid's got to be right there. And, and that's how I think, that's how I think that that should be. I think it should be a family decision. I like the oversight of having them need to be a mentor in the state where I live. Uh, we can start at 10 years old. So, um, my my boy who's 13, he's got three years of mentored deer hunting under his belt. My 10-year-old daughter, this will be her first year. She'll get several years of mentored hunting under her belt. Then she can go on and do her own hunter safety and, and have had that time. And I think that's I think that's a great policy adjustment. And that's becoming pretty widespread. Um so I think the people that do you know, years ago, I heard from a buddy of mine, and he's a great guy. I don't want to say his name because I wouldn't want to give him the wrong impression about him. Phenomenal guy. Very hard worker. School teacher. Busts his ass. Uh, lives for the kids. But he had, when it came to hunting, you know, he had his vacation. And he had that one chance to hunt. And um, he just, it was his time to get away, you know. And and didn't have that, oppor- didn't have that opportunity to bring his kids in it. Mm-hmm the way he wanted to. So I like these, these policy adjustments to give parents more chances to, to raise their kids up with some exposure to that. So that's, that's the thing I applaud with all the state game agencies, because that's a widespread movement. That's good. Um, that's good. Give Texas, mentor yeah. an opportunity I think early. Texas has been doing it for, for a while. Oh uh, yeah. They probably got... led the charge. Yeah. Texas is always great about stuff. Great about that type of ruling. Exactly. It let the parents decide. So we got our daughter out there very early. We we're in California and the SEAL teams at the time, she was too young for California to hunt legally. So mm-hmm. that's why we started going, going to Texas and got on a lease up there in Red River County, a beautiful spot um, right there uh, on the Texas, Oklahoma border. And that's where she got her first deer. And we went back year after year, sometimes twice a year out out there and it was before some of those other things intrude like oh you know what they now that we're in competitive soccer or lacrosse or whatever else is that that uh that, that get a lot of families these days but getting them started where hey if you miss a game at seven eight nine you know it's okay uh you're getting closer to high school maybe they get a little more devoted to it or you know whatever else but i love that states have leave the 
it should be the parents' decision. I mean, it seems like an obvious, an obvious thing. You're going to pass down these skills that have been with us for, for the, well, since the beginning of time, really. No. Um, and I'll tell you decide. a thing you don't hear, and I'm sure there's isolated cases, but the thing you don't hear is you don't hear with these kids out as mentored hunters, you're just not hearing about hunting accidents coming from these situations. Yeah. I'm not saying it hasn't happened. It is not a widespread common issue Yeah, with the mentor. And I think that that was the thing that was held out as the why not and the why not hasn't developed yeah and texas had a, a weekend where it was just for kids also so there wasn't yep. a chance of like you know you're with somebody but this huge buck walks out and there wasn't that decision to make like i'm going to take this one no it's only sure. for kids this weekend and then uh fishing game would come out and had to bring all the kids around you know and they're in their uniform and they have the cool truck and you know they're talking yep. about all the different parts of the animal and all that stuff and i think it's just cool to for kids to hear some of that stuff coming from someone other than than dad uh or, or that was just really really cool for us as a family anyway but uh Okay, I'm got my eye on the clock, but I want to ask for people who haven't uh, or have watched the show. Uh, how did the show start? Like, what, what, how did that? What was that path to a show? Because we talked about you wanted to be a writer, and you feel this calling from an early age, and you're doing it, and then the show, Meat Eater. Oh man, it was such a long, long process that for a long time I didn't spend a ton of time on, but. When I was a magazine writer, so before I did books, I was a magazine writer, and I would get summoned to TV land now and then mm. because you're out having adventures and finding out what's going on, and you'd, and you'd write pieces. And, and so inevitably, producers, networks would want to talk to you about your work and, you know, and kind of mine it for ideas. And, and I optioned some stuff uh, that, that didn't go anywhere. And then it eventually led, and when I published a book, then it became like, well, maybe you'd want to do pursue one of these ideas. And and after all these really boring stories about uh, development deals, I, I did land a very short-lived show on Travel Channel. We did eight episodes. It was called The Wild Within. Uh, did not do well. The only reason I'm glad I did it, the only reason I'm glad I did it is because it let me do what I want doing after the fact. But we came out of that experience. Um, me, a guy named Mo Fallon, a guy named Nick Brigden, a guy named Jared Andrew Canis, people I stayed friends with many years. We came out of that experience being like, man, we want to do a really stripped down show about, you know, the things I talk about and, and write about and love. And we got that opportunity by just creating we made meat eater and just licensed it. Mm. We licensed it at the time because no one bought it outright, but it was the luckiest bad thing that ever happened to me because now I, we just own it all. Right. Like I own the whole library. Mm. We're able to, we were able to found a company. Had we done, had someone bought that show and we made it, they would have bought the IP. Yeah. But just luckily, Luckily, people were like, well, we want to license it, but we don't want to spend the money necessary to acquire it. Huh. We'll license it. And we went on to do a lot of licensing. We licensed and still licensed to Sportsman Channel, Outdoor Channel, um, licensed to Netflix, and Netflix would run it as a Netflix original because we had licensed premieres on Netflix. And um, we, we still make shows today. So we made, I don't know, not quite 200, but a hell of a lot of episodes. Awesome. Uh, and, it, you know, that's a lot. Um, 
through that, I've been able to do books the whole time. And it's great. And, and to be honest with you, if I had, um, you know, I'm very proud of what we did with, with, with me eater. And, and it was, it, it wound up being like, like influential in its, mm-hmm. in its space, but that's as much to do with those guys, Nick and Mo and Jared that I talked to it's as much to do with them as about me. But one of the things I liked most about it is it's been able to allow me to continue to publish and, and really increase my readership, right? As, as I'm sure that you probably experienced, like your books were doing great, man. And then you got, you know, you get some TV exposure and you you realize an effect of that. So one of the things about being a writer, the way I used to imagine, I used to imagine a writer was a person that wrote books and I, I do do books, but I write in a lot of formats, audio original. I, I think of my podcasting as a form of, of, of writing, writing TV as a form of writing, right? I'm still writing. I'm just writing a lot of different stuff. And, and that sort of scrappiness, if I was going to make a recommendation to people, if you, you know, people that, 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 that follow you and they're in, 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 they, they want to be in that business and in that game you're in. I think that that scrappiness is something that I know you can attest to and that willingness to just seize opportunities. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that's enabled me to do that original thing, which is like the books, but I do a lot of, I, I have a set of ideas I like to deal with and I'll, and I'll publish or push that set of ideas in any way, in any way I can. Yeah. Right? I, I'm not choosy. Yeah. But I get to deal with my ideas. Right. Oh, man, that's so awesome. I'd love to see what, you, what you've done. And uh, one of my, the reasons that my daughter really wanted to go hunting at such an early age is because we, we were watching your show. And we put on, we had out, it was on Outdoor Channel at the time. So this is like, let's see, 2012, 13, somewhere, somewhere in there. And yep. uh, she just, I mean, she just naturally gravitated towards wanting to hunt. And, uh, and so, we, so we did. But a lot of that, I think it was because, in, in, and a lot of watching the Outdoor Channel back then was because of the commercials. You could trust the commercials a little more than you could watching anything else. Uh, like you turn your back on a commercial, all of a sudden your kid's fixated to the screen on something oh, yeah, totally no, inappropriate, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you're like, what? If on an outdoor channel, like most of the commercials were pretty, pretty legit, you know, Bass Pro Shop commercial or whatever. Like you can trust that one. Like it's okay. Um, yeah. But uh, like we'd always watch your show. Uh, there's a couple others that we just, oh, we'd never miss. Uh, I even have my t-shirt from back in the day. It's an old school one right there. So I see that oh, one. sweet. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's old. That's an OG one, I think. Um, oh, but uh, yeah, that's why we started. I mean, I mean, that was, it was huge for, for my daughter. Um, like she didn't know really who some of these like pop star people were, but she knew who you were. Uh, she knew who Jim Shockey was like, and she'd mentioned it to her friends in like, I don't know, this is first grade, second grade, third grade, perhaps. And they'd be talking about something and mention your name. And they'd be like, like this little girl, you know, seven year old girl would be like, who? And my daughter would like, look at me like, she doesn't know who this is. You know, she doesn't know who Steve Rennell is. <laughs> like what's wrong with her? So it's like, you don't know who Jim Shockey is. Like it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. So it was great memories of, uh, of watching your show in our house there in Coronado. My last couple of years in the SEAL teams, watching you grow this thing. Um, uh, did oh, he, how are those awesome, episodes, man. episodes that stand out to you on any, and what few episodes stand out to you is like, uh, um, I don't know, impactful to you. Maybe, yeah. maybe that you didn't expect going into them. Um, the, the way we would work on them, uh, sometimes we would do a thing and we would, we would have a theme in our mind. Um, 
that sat outside of what the actual pursuit was. Mm-hmm. Not always. So, you know, a lot of times we go out, like we just did a spearfishing one in the, in the Bahamas and, and, and uh, just filmed in Alaska bear hunting. And that was just, you know, we knew, went in and do it. Like we knew it was going to be action packed and it was going to be the, the story was the hunt. Yeah. And that's the thing we do a lot of, but sometimes we'll have a, we'll want to like explore a theme. And we did these ones where we took uh, my, my, longtime producer and colleague and he comes on the show as a guest all the time Giannis Patelis. Mm-hmm. Uh, his dad had always had a dream to go up in, to Alaska and do a big game hunt so we wanted to do a thing about dads right and and took his dad up and explored all these themes about the outdoors and dads and for me it was, I I talked a lot about the ways in which I I uh, if I could change things between my dad, um, things that I would do, meaning he spent a great deal of effort to, to get me outside. If he was going out hunting, there's no way I wasn't invited. Right. And we never had the second act. We never had it that I'm here. Like he didn't live to see my kids. Right. So we didn't have that later part where, where I go take him out, Mm -hmm. you know, and show him around. But but Giannis was living this because Giannis is a big game guy, very experienced hunter. Um, and here he is in a situation where he's metaphorically holding his father's hand mm-hmm. on this hunt, you know. He's the one encouraging his dad to get up to the top of the hill, right? And it was and it, we did this two-part thing about that. And it was that that was really impactful because. We had a great action-packed hunt too. You know, we got a nice caribou. Giannis's dad got a great bull moose. Um, fly-in hunting—it's so adventurous and it's stand, it's so freestandingly good. Mm-hmm. But on top of that was this really th- this nice um, meditation on dads and sons in the outdoors and and what you owe. Uh, you know, what you owe to the people ahead of you living, you know, some thoughts on, on the remorse of not getting it right and how maybe it would make sense in hindsight, you know, it would have made sense to get it right, you know? And and so that, that stands out to me as just one of those really, uh, one of those really special episodes. There were many, I'm probably thinking about this one now because we're, we're talking about, raising kids and, yeah. and all these kinds of things. But that was one that meant a lot, you know, that really meant a lot to me. Yeah. And they're so, and they're so good. I encourage everybody who hasn't watched them uh, that has kids, even get this book and then watch the show with your kids. Cause it inspires not just going hunting, but adventure, just getting outside. Uh, one of the ones that stands out to me is probably around that same time frame, 2013, 14 timeframe. Uh, when you're up in Alaska at your place up there and you're hunting the coast uh, for a bear and, yeah. uh, and you don't take the shot. In yeah, for some yeah. reason, that one really stands out to me. I remember watching it with my daughter, and uh, that was just a really cool episode. The you know the voiceover was awesome, and that one the, the, I love that terrain. Like for me, that kind of terrain hunting, like uh, like a Kodiak type terrain, or like you know Washington State, Oregon, like that. Where it goes from nice beaches up to just rocky, moss covered, you know, green 
overcast, rain. Like I just love that kind of terrain in general. And that's kind of what it's like. I think the word you're looking for is dank. (laughs) Dank. That's it. It's a dank terrain. And uh, and your place is right there in the middle of it in Alaska, which is awesome. Uh, So I always love those episodes that that, that showed your place up there. But that one in particular, the way uh, you don't take that shot at the end on that bear and whatever you do, the voiceover stands out to me. But anyway, that was that was awesome. But I really think for absolutely. I think families should get this book and watch the show. Um, it'll inspire. I mean, who knows what that kids might looking for something that that kids six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, like those kids are maybe looking for something and uh, maybe they don't have it because they don't have that parent that hunts or they're both parents are working and, you know, they're they're not taking their kids backpacking or rock climbing or mountaineering or hunting or fishing um, just because they're everybody's busy and people are so busy these days and you take the office home with you on the phone. But if you put that phone away and watch your show, I think it can inspire families just to get outside, whether it's hunting, fishing, or just get out with the kids. Um, and then, and now they have this book to, to go with it. So that's, I mean, I'll absolutely love it. Um, and I know you only have a little bit of time here left, but uh, cookbook here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something from the cookbook tonight, a little uh, California spiny lobster. So I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, it's in here. It's in near, near the back in this one right here. Oh, there's, great, a, really? there's a recipe for it in here. Uh, so I'm doing that tonight. A buddy, Darvel, he just yeah, won, we- won the, uh, uh, well, I think it was in Lake Powell, but they won the... Um, freshwater spearfishing competition out there. And then he sent me from, from California, he sent me some uh, spiny lobsters. So I'm going to grill those up tonight with, with your recipe in here. Oh, love it. Love it. Uh, we've been, we kind of finished all of our recipe testing and we're doing a follow-up to that book. Nice. All, all outdoor cooking. Nice. Love so it. Grilling. Yeah. Grilling, smoking, you know, crazy caveman stuff, really ele- elegant stuff, but just all outdoor, but very much in the vein of, the, of that book, you know, and, Love that, it. that book was a, was, um, that book just did well, does well. Yeah. Um, it was, it was a, a lot of fun to do that. And it's just been one of those ones that just kind of continuously plugs away and, 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 and people have loved it. So we're excited to do another one. And the photos are amazing in there too. Do you have one person John that Hafner, does that? Man, John Hafner. Wow. He, he crushes it, those photos. Those photos look fantastic. He's uh, a phenomenal wildlife photographer too. Yeah. I, oh, I bet by seeing, by seeing the, the, the photos in there, I do not doubt it. Um, all right. I know you got a couple minutes left here, but book is coming out by the time this is going to drop next week. So we're recording this on May or sorry, on oh, June 14th. Out. So the May, book is out, but uh, yep. you're going on your tour next week. Uh, I'm going on my tour next week. Correct. Yeah. So you got in a couple of days, actually. So by the time this drops, you'll have a few days left on it. And you're doing it with shields this time. You're going to be hitting all those, those shields yep. going there. So people can go to your website, mediator.com right there. There's a banner. They can click on that, find out where you're going to be and, uh, and come see you. But, uh, that's pretty cool to be doing it with, with shields. Oh, that'll be a lot. It'll be a lot of fun, man. Um, it, it's a great little relationship we have there and, um, cool venues, uh, it's a ticketed deal. I, this might be a day of thing, just a little bit different way they do book stuff now. I know that you've you've done some of it. It's easy. The ticket is just the book price. Yeah. And and if you you get one, you bring you know bring your kids, bring bring your family. It's not like everybody has to have one, but it's just you just get a book, and then they they know ahead of time we'll have the book waiting for you and sign it. So it's it's not like a it's it's a book purchase. Yeah. Is what it is. Yeah. They have to do it because they don't know is if uh, you know. 500 people show up, but they only order a hundred books. And then yeah. you have, so you have 400 yeah. people that are like, Oh man, I wish it was, you know, how, how did you guys run out of books <laughs> so fast? Type of yeah, thing. There, there's no so, expectation that people have one for everybody, right? Just get, get your family. in. so, yeah, um, no, those would be Matt, awesome. I really appreciate the plugs, man. And it was, it was, 
it was great that you you came on our show and that was uh, i really appreciate that oh that was super fun people have contacted me uh over the last few weeks after after hearing that that episode we had a really good time and uh, oh, how really? long how long is the podcast like as soon as podcast became a thing were you like ah oh, here's another like are you looking at this like a battle space kind of what we talked about earlier looking at opportunities did you see like how long until no. did it take you know what's funny <laughs> were you, you, you think you were you late I could take you and show you the exact place where I ever first heard the word podcast. Uh-huh. And it was because I had been invited on. I had never heard the word. And and I didn't know. I had never heard the word name Joe Rogan. And someone <laughs> named Helen Cho. I could show you where we were standing. She said, this guy Joe Rogan wants you to come on a podcast. I'd never be like, what the hell is that? I'm not kidding you, man. But as I became friends with Joe and went on a show a few times, he's like, you really ought to start a podcast. And uh, he encouraged me to do it. Nice. And and we got into it. I mean, he got into it early, early, yeah. like early. Um, and we wound up getting into it early. I mean, nowhere near as early as him, but early from an outdoor perspective. Yeah. Um, not the first by any stretch, but early on in that thing. And I think now, I don't know, man, we we drop weekly and we're in the, I don't know, three or four hundreds now, you know. That's like, awesome. A lot of shows, man. And it's fun. If for people haven't listened to it, you should check it out because it's not a normal podcast like we're doing, like just having a conversation. Like I, there are a lot of people in that room and everybody's contributing here and there. <laughs> and it's like fun. It's like a party in there. It's uh it's just a great atmosphere and you can sense it when you listen to it uh as well. So that's a that it's 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 super fun. People should totally check that out. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. And uh all right, couple minutes left. International hunting. Uh, you're just down in the Bahamas doing that. What's uh, what international hunts have stood out to you? Because I like international stuff because it's uh, in some places like Africa, you can get years of deer hunting experience essentially for your ten days back then. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, in in a couple weeks, in a week over there with all the animals that you and you can learn from those trackers, learn from those professional hunters. If you go to a place like Mozambique where it's kind of still more old Africa, um, you can learn a ton there. But each country, like you, you've been to Scotland and you've been to all the other places around the world, they all have their different hunting traditions, and uh, that's what I really like about international hunting but uh do you have any coming up and then what would have stood out to you from international hunting perspective either doing the show or personal or writing about uh, what stands out to you my favorite is barely international because we hunt every year about 30 40 miles south of the arizona border so we hunt we, we hunt coos deer in mexico every year but it's the ranch methods there it's like going back in time um and people still uh work cattle and men fence on horseback you know and uh you go up in those mountains man there's no one around which i love it it feels it's so just being that close i mean you're looking like you're looking at mountains back in the u.s you know Mm. but after being down there in sonora hunting deer um in that kind of that environment and then you drive just that handful of miles and, and cross back into Arizona. It's like jarring, yeah. you know, because you look back and be like, dude, I just like time traveled. You know? yeah. and, and that ranching culture is just, it, it, it's different because it, it's these enormous ranches with oftentimes ranch hands, cowboys that have been affiliated with those properties for generations, mm-hmm. not the owners but generations of, of families that have run cattle as workers on these places. It, 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 it's such a special trip. And um, that's an annual January thing for me. I haven't hunted Africa yet. 
I'm really now that I met I met some guys I want to hunt with terribly. Um, I really want to hunt with them. Uh, Robin Hurt Safaris there in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. uh, Roger Hurt came on the podcast with a, with another PH Morgan Potter. Um, I want to go hunt Cape Buffalo with those guys so bad, man. But but I have I've never done it. But I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna dig into it. And I've got to hunt and fish around the world, but I I just haven't done it. I haven't gone to Africa now. I was kind of waiting for the right uh, contact, you right. know, and, and the right, you know, and when you throw in with someone on something like that, like you, you want to know who I like to know who I'm hanging out with. Oh yeah. And and so now I got that where, where I know that I'm going to have a great time with those guys. And I was able to talk with them more than just a sales pitch, you know, but right. like hang out with them and talk about their experiences, how they run their camp. And that was the level of, of I shouldn't put it as comfort, but that was the the level of detail that now I'm real excited about having that experience, yeah, and, and, and going hunting Cape Buffalo. Um, and, and I don't I don't need that all the time. Like I'll, I'll I'll roll the dice, and have rolled the dice on places, but but uh, I'm feeling real good about my prospects of, of getting over there, hopefully next summer. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's what I did for Mozambique for researching True Believer, my second novel. And I wanted to do it the same way you would have done it 100 years ago. So double rifle, no optic on there, just irons. And uh, it was a 500 416 Nitro Express uh, made by Kriegoff. And uh, I couldn't have written it better the way it went down, but it's, uh, it, was, it was awesome. It was a great experience. And, uh, and yeah, a lot of what I learned over there made it in, got woven into that book and my next one, third one, Savage Sun. So it's, uh, yeah, you'll have, you'll, it'll be a great, it'll be fun. I mean, It'll be a great experience. Great experience yeah. for you. Okay. Those research trips are funny because you get accused of you get accused of being out just messing around. And I always need to clarify. No, 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 no. That's right. For any IRS <laughs> people listening. That's right. For anybody from the IRS <laughs> tuning in right now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is hard work. It's all business. This, this all business. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, man. Awesome. I'll let you get back to the family. And right here, this is the latest one. Catch a crayfish, count the stars. And uh, yeah, parents, not just parents, though. If you have a niece, nephew, like this is a great gift. You're searching for a gift friend, and you don't have kids, but you have friends who have kids and nieces and nephews, that sort of thing. Bam, right here. And then uh, check out the website, meateater.com and look for those uh, signing opportunities to uh, to hang out, meet you, and check out Shields as well. Those places are awesome. We have one right down here, and you're finishing up the tour, I think, down here in Salt Lake. I think I'm gone, yep. but uh, you're finishing one. down. Yeah, last one's down here in Salt Lake. Those things, like, you can spend the day there with the family. You don't need to go to Disneyland or uh, anything like that. You yeah. can just, just go to one of these places. Yeah. Destination shopping, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Just let everybody run, let the kids run wild. There's games. There's all sorts of stuff. It's fantastic. So uh, go check those out. And, uh, man, I also want to thank you you for your friendship for having me on the podcast and for yeah. all you do for those who venture afield so that is yeah, well thanks for the generous endorsements man i appreciate it absolutely take care and hopefully we'll uh we'll see you up there in montana or something soon oh we have to we're gonna make it happen all right you take care talk all soon right. Bye bye. later black raffle coffee company you can help black raffle coffee raise one million dollars to benefit veterans through the boot campaign all you need to do is grab a can of ready-to-drink coffee online or from your local grocery or convenience store. The Boot Campaign is one of the most renowned veteran-focused nonprofits in the country, working tirelessly to provide life-changing aid and benefits to service members and their families. 
Join forces with Black Rifle in the boot campaign from May through the end of the year, where every can of ready-to-drink coffee you buy will contribute to making this massive donation possible. Black Rifle ready-to-drink coffee is available in several great-tasting flavors on the Black Rifle Coffee website at your local convenience or grocery store. And no matter where you are, you can fuel your caffeine fix while supporting veterans. Every time you crack open a can of ready-to-drink, you'll be making a huge difference in the lives of veterans and their families. Black Rifle Coffee is committed to serving the veteran community, and with your help, we can all continue to make a difference. Let's raise a can together to keep fueling Americans for a good cause. Check out blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose. Drink up. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. First off, let's start with the six hour P365X macro right here. This thing, 17 rounds in that magazine. And ooh, this is just awesome. If you do not have one of these, I highly recommend picking one up. Got the red dot from SIG on there as well. P365X macro. Check it out. And holster wise, Black Point Tactical, some of my favorites. Been using these since uh, 2016, I want to say. 2015, 2016, uh, for a while. Love the Black Point Tactical holsters. All right, Schnees, Montana, Bozeman. If you happen to be in Bozeman, Montana, highly recommend going and checking out Schnees right there on the main drag. Go in, awesome store. I went for the first time. I've known them for the longest time. I've been wearing Schnees boots since for over a decade now, but hadn't made it up to the store. And it's awesome. So if you're going through Bozeman, for sure, drop by, check them out. It's definitely an experience. And pick up some boots. These are some new ones right here. These are the Mission boots just launched on June 1st. So I'm going to be giving these guys a run very shortly. But all the Schnee's boots that I've had over the years, and there are quite a few, um, none of them have ever let me down. So this is the Mission. Check it out. Schnee's.com. S-C-H-N-E-E-S. Dot com. And what is this? Well, first thing you'll notice is that it's empty. I need to get a little, some more here. But this is my collaboration with Hooten Young. And if you don't know Hooten Young, check out their website. And right here, this is a Warrior Proof Whiskey right here. 17-year reserve. And it's awesome. Drink it neat, maybe with a drop or two of water. But um, as you can tell, I went through mine pretty quick. So check that out. Go to uh, hootenyoung.com and uh, you can search up the Jack Carr collaboration. It's awesome. All right. Let's see. Look at this. All right, Jim. Yeah. So Jim from African Sporting Creations dropped by one of my book signings on this last tour and gave me this cane. And I didn't know what to make of it until I did that. Oh, yeah. Jim, thank you so much uh, for stopping by the book signing and for your friendship over the years. And yeah, check out African Sporting Creations. They have some awesome stuff. Courtney Boots on there, some amazing knives, just a, a really cool organization. So go check them out. And look at that right there. He made a little cross tomahawks for a little leather carrier. Awesome. Jim, thank you, my friend. And you can go to officialjackcar.com, click on shop in the upper right-hand corner and 
There's a bunch of stuff on there. The new summer line has dropped that includes these whiskey glasses right here. They pair very nicely with this Hoot & Young whiskey right there. All right. What else do I have here? Another Montana. Montana Knife Company. Look at that. Josh Smith over there. Montana Knife Company. Made in the USA right here. This one is the Ultralight Speed Goat. So right there. Get signed up for their newsletters so you can find out when they're doing their drops. And right there, Montana Knife Company. Awesome. Josh, thank you. And what else? Ooh, new coffee, Black Rifle Coffee Company. Go check them out. And ooh, the Sticker Club. That's right. So they have the Sticker Club you can sign up for. So what do I have here? Oh, yep. Four new stickers this month right here. Awesome. And a new coffee. Look at that. Ooh. Love that artwork on there. Awesome. BlackRifleCoffee.com. Check it out. And, of course, it comes with some directions for different ways to make it. So thank you, guys. And that is it for today. Oh, Aries Watch Company. Check these out. This is the Jack Car collaboration. I think there's a few more of these left on the site at OfficialJackCar.com. You can check those out. And I'll catch you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. For more on Steve Ranella, go to TheMeatEater.com. You can link to his social channels from there, but on Instagram, it is Meat Eater, and you can also check out Stephen Ranella, and that is R-I-N-E-L-L-A. Follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA, officialjackcar.com. That is the website. Click in the upper right-hand corner on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe. Be strong. Keep fighting.